Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the program, Senior Vice President of Advisor Sales Dave Bushnell and Vice President of Product Andrew Klee join host Pamela Ritchie to discuss industry trends, innovations, and what advisors should keep top of mind in 2024. Andrew and Dave began by commenting on the whirlwind that was 2023. Dave highlights GICs and GICs high interest savings accounts as a dominant topic amongst advisors. And Andrew adds that we experienced two different markets in one year and it didn't look promising until about mid-October. Andrew also adds we saw a double-digit return in the last quarter of the year with big tech names ending on a high note. So most of the year-to-date gains came in a short period of time. Andrew says although bonds didn't do too well in 2023, the returns did come significantly in a short period of time at the end of the year. Andrew adds that the key is to stay invested rather than trying to time things out. Dave highlights a good strategy for 2024, that is to leverage the Fidelity sales team as much as possible. Andrew adds to look at the redeployment of higher interest savings, GICs and traditional 60-40 asset classes. He says to start thinking about reinvestment risk from an interest rate standpoint rather than the total return over the next 12 months. This podcast is recorded on January 16th, 2024. Dave, I'm going to ask you for both of you, I'll ask a little bit about last year, a little bit about what we're setting up for this year. But um, I wonder if you can intro us into what were some of the biggest concerns that you heard from advisors from the community um, about what they were dealing with last year, and then we'll lead into this year. Perfect. And maybe I can start. I would say that last year, we really hadn't, I'm going to say, talked about GICs, and I feel like it was 10 years. And last year, GICs, high interest savings accounts. I feel like, and I know in many of the Fidelity Connects, it was a dominant topic. And I know that I don't, I don't believe there would be an advisor out there that wasn't having lots of clients asking them, should I get it by and now? Should we do a high interest savings account? Should we lock in for GICs? How long should we hold for? And these were really new conversations that we haven't seen in a very, very long time. I do have to say, I do think it was wonderful though, that as much as the year was quite turbulent, I think it was wonderful that we did end the year strong. And I hope for many of those advisors that I think had those difficult conversations on the importance of staying invested, clients, excuse me, were rewarded at the end of last year. But I would say that was the one of the big ones. And I also think it was with all everything going on last year, be it geopolitical, be it market, it was just deploying of capital. Just when do you deploy capital? How do you deploy capital? With so so much noise, I'll say, in the market last year. And it really felt like there was a lot. I feel like that's going to be a thread that we're going to discuss here today, probably come back to it several times. Andrew Klee, take us to those conversations yeah. and, and what was demanded uh, from clients on those yeah, fronts. It was a really interesting year, and it was actually almost like two different markets if you kind of take Q1 to Q3 and then what happened in Q4, because all wasn't rosy until about mid-October, if right. we want to kind of call where the bottom was. And then we saw the reacceleration specifically in fixed income. So we actually had aggregate bonds to take like a, a Canadian bond mandate. It was in a negative return territory until about mid-October. Then it went double digits and we finished the year plus eight. Like that, that's a pretty interesting story. And that was all on the back of the, the banks are actually going to have to cut interest rates. Um, when we looked at ETFs, they had a pretty strong year, like $38 billion in net sales. Um, but also with kind of two stories where the high interest saving account ETFs, they were about a third of the flow until mid-October-ish. Then they fell to about 23% year-to-date flow, if we look at the entire year of 2023. But you saw this appetite changes. Like, I just want GICs and HISAs. 
And then that flipped to the point where it's now I actually want duration. And we saw that, that close to double digit return kind of in that last quarter of the year. So I almost felt like we had two separate markets where That's the year really started off in fear. And then we got into this risk on mandate and we saw the big tech names actually start ripping into Q4 as well. And so a lot of the year to date gains came in a very, very short period of time. It's interesting that the, I mean, this was the discussion of bonds last year, wasn't it? Because there were, there were sort of in May, June, July, like through the middle part, the belly part of the year, there, were, there was always that phrase, well, if you don't like bonds now, you just don't like bonds. You don't, you have, but actually, you didn't see, it sounds like, that pivot until the end of the year. Like that was something that came in. People really became aware of it later on. And I just, yeah, was that, was that your experience? Like you watched the demand shift into that discussion of everyone likes bonds again. Well, I think it was interesting that everyone knew, and, and people like Andrew, I know, were, were on these, this program talking about that they got the math, we got it's going to go down, we got how it was going to work. But to Andrew's point, it sort of felt like it took forever. Yeah. And I think a lot of people got in and just was the waiting and waiting and waiting. But to Andrew's point, it was interesting just to see how quickly it did come. Yeah. And I think it's, it's when you, we have all those charts that we like to talk about where certain returns come in very short periods of time. I think that last year, Andrew and I talked about this all the time, last year was such a a catalyst and reminder of that, that my goodness, it can come very quickly. Because again, it really looked like it was never going to happen. It's halfway through the year. I, I was at a client event in Woodstock, Ontario in beginning of October, and all we talked about was GICs. And my comment was, at that point in time, you're getting about 7% right. yield to maturity. So it's hard uh, to argue with that. You yeah. can see why people's questions were right there. Uh, on a global core plus mandate or like a multi-sector bond, and you're getting four, four and a half in the GIC. And they just say, why would I take the risk? And I didn't think it was going to happen that quickly, but if you just think about it, you made four and a half percent over the next 12 months in the GIC. You got close to a double digit return in like 90 days mm -hmm. by, by owning the bonds. But I also think it gets back to the point of being out of the market is the hardest point because we don't know if it's going to take 90 days, 18 months, 12 months. So it's just staying invested and staying to your strategy rather than trying to time it, I think is the most important part. And when we look at where we're at today, like you, you talked about inflation, um, that wasn't a good print for the Bank of Canada. Right. So like, I, I haven't had a chance to, to take a, a look since all the news has come out, but I, I imagine the bond market's not reacting quite nicely to that. We've got some nice yields uh, <laughs> shooting up there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it, again, when That's look, partly from like Waller walking back Fed points yeah. too. But anyway, that's a story on its own. But when I look at, okay, what's my risk of a GIC versus a bond fund? Sure, sure the GIC or the HISA is not as volatile as a, 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 a traditional bond mandate. But I, I always look back at the reinvestment risk. So I think there is a debate of, okay, is the Fed going to cut in April? Is it going to be July? Is it going to be September? I don't think that's the discussion we should be having because when I buy a 12-month GIC, I get that yield for the next 12 months. Right. What if interest rates are 150 basis points lower when that matures? You now have to redeploy that capital into a new interest rate environment. When I look at something like multi-sector Global Core Plus, and I can get a six-handle, with a, a six year duration on it, I've now locked in my yield to maturity for the next six years, right? So the way to think about it is, what are you going to do when that GIC comes up? Comes up? Because there are some pretty attractive yields right now that we haven't seen in decades. Um, it's not the peak, obviously we came down significantly in that November, December rally. But there's still room. There's, yeah, they're still attractive where you're getting a yield to maturity that either outstrips or matches your duration risk. And I think that's a pretty healthy risk reward. Dave, in the, uh, tell us a little bit about the lead up to and, and ultimately the launch of, um, of global equity 
fund. It was towards the end of last year and it has really, it was a fun interview, sort of listening to some of them discuss it, I think with Glenn Davidson. Tell us how that came about because that came about in an interesting environment, right? Yeah, it's funny you said that we're always looking at fidelity and we actually, we love pairing portfolio managers together when it works and we love having people like Andrew that are always thinking of new product ideas. And actually where it came from was, is we talk about it, anyone that knows Fidelity well knows we have Dan Dupont, who's a wonderful value manager. We have Mark Schmell, who's a great growth manager. And it came to many conversations that Andrew and I had where, would we ever put these two together? Like, would that would that be a disaster? Would that be brilliance? How, how would that go? And so Andrew went down that path and I still remember he came to see me and he said, actually, we've got something that's gonna work even better. And that was putting Hugo, Mark and Dan all together and, and we ran all of the analysis that you would run. How did it look over 10 years? What was upside and downside? But I thought what was the really exciting part of this fund was putting Dan's global value long short in it as well as a sleeve. And we talked which about- Which is how, the alt that he- Which yeah. is the alt. So we had never done that before. So this was new for us. And really the, the hope was is that we would smooth out the ride, but give you those great returns that you're used to from all those managers. And we're thrilled that we have just over $800 million in it. So our advisors have really liked it, which has been wonderful. I mean, Andrew, you can definitely jump in, but I know when we launched this, it was one of those where we got really excited when we communicated to advisors. They were really excited because it just can take out some of those volatilities of having growth and value managers that can bring sort of the line together. Fascinating, yeah, Andrew. Yeah, I think it's been the battle my entire career. Do you wanna be growth or value? And we had the big <laughs> growth run from 2008 all the way up till about 2020. Um, the pandemic kind of brought back the light of the value stocks, like 2022 was a great year for, for the value. Um, and then Q4 last year, we saw a growth come back and it's kind of been thrown out again on, on a year-to-date basis. So when we looked at the strategy, it's like what's in this for the investors is almost so bringing in behavioral finance to a degree. When you bet on a style, it hurts when you're wrong. And no matter what we say, emotions do get involved in investing. And I, I think when the advice channel kind of looks at this, it's less client statement risk because it's not as volatile as putting all your bag, eggs in one basket in terms of I'm gonna pick growth or I'm gonna pick value. And to Dave's comment, why did we bring in Hugo is value and growth tend to be negatively correlated from an alpha standpoint. Mm -hmm. So I'm not talking about the returns. From a what standpoint? An alpha. An alpha. So yep. both the returns can be positive, but the excess returns over a benchmark tend to be negatively correlated. And so why did we bring in Hugo was he's contrarian. So he hmm. tends to go into both sides of the market. So if you think about it, you've got Mark on one side with momentum. You've got Dan on one side in value and then you bring in Hugo and he's kind of like your utility player in the middle yeah. where he may sometimes look like Mark, he may sometimes look like value. And then when you put them all together, we, we created this product that is less cyclical but can still offer you that consistent alpha without having to put your bets um, in one style camp. Okay, just, just to spread that out, less cyclical. Just take us there. What, what do you mean by that? You're watching that. Well, well, I would say one of the things we talk about a lot is upside and downside capture rates. It's kind of a metric we love at Fidelity. It's basically simply put, if the market goes up 10, how much did you much go you up? Get? Did you go up more or less? And if the market goes down, so as I'm sure everyone could guess, uh, someone take a Mark Schmale, wonderful upside, mm -hmm. but he is about market downside. Dan DuPont will not capture the same on the way up, but a much better downside. And to Andrew's point, well, just what we've learned is, is that if you can combine that and we built this fund, the metric that got us most excited was, you still have a wonderful, wonderful upside participation, but that downside capture rate is wonderful. It's, it's not as good as say a Canadian large cap, but it's definitely just a little bit high. It's just a little bit higher than that. And that again, going back to Andrew's point, for so many people when they talk to us and go, well, is now the time to buy Mark? Is now the time to buy Dan? And we've talked about that 
really for over a decade, mm -hmm. our thought is this could take that conversation and make it much easier. And I mean, they're really difficult markets right now. Like Andrew, tell us a little bit of your, your outlook for this year, the, the idea of diversification, the idea of, with the rate story, there's um, people talking about analogies of dancing on the head of a pin. Like there, it, it is tricky right now. Yeah. It's tricky. It, it's gonna be an earnings recovery story. Like right. it, it has to be. And the reason you look at it is, the multiple expansion that we saw in Q4, I don't think you can argue, specifically in the US, that we have an attractive valuation here, right? Right, okay. And so, so what keeps the market where it's at or takes it higher, it's gonna be the earnings story coming in because I, th I think the, the, the PE multiple expansion, we saw it go well north of 18, kind of from that like yeah. 15 at the bottom or so. So how do you keep that multiple? Well, the E is gonna be a big story. Mm -hmm. We saw some of the uh, the asset managers and the banks come out um, this morning in earnings, yeah. and it was a mixed story, right? It's a mixed um, story, yeah. So it's, it's gonna be really interesting to watch, and a lot of it's gonna be dependent on the Fed. And so you were saying Waller was talking back the pivot today. Yeah. Um, there was a story over the weekend that uh, QT may be over. Mm -hmm. And so that's coming from a bank as well as a Wall Street journalist um, that tends to have an in at the Fed because he was kind of the journalist leaking when all the rate hikes were coming preemptively. So is there truth to that? I love looking at that stuff. Yeah, is, it, is there truth to that? I don't really know. But. Well, the QT is a really interesting yeah. tool, isn't it? Because it yeah. allows them just something else other than the rate story, which, you know, we're, we're hard. Okay, let me ask both of you this. Do you think that rates are as impactful as, as say, they were? There, there's always this argument if the cuts are obviously a massive story, but, but at least this allows them another tool. So are rates as impactful as in, they were? In the U.S., no. Um, and the reason for that is... They have a very different mortgage market where yes, you can right. take on a 30-year mortgage with a fixed interest rate and you never have to refinance. But a key difference there is the mortgage is non-portable. So in Canada, when we move, we take our mortgage with us. Right. In the U.S., when you move, you do not take your mortgage with you. It's actually associated with the house. Um, so what that has done is basically taken housing inventory and turnover in the U.S. to a standstill because if my mortgage rate is 3%, for the next 25 years, why would I move and take on a 6% mortgage rate? Um, but what that also means is that the effect of monetary policy, just from an interest rate standpoint, had a far less impact or financial cost to the US consumer. Whereas in Canada, if you just say it's simply, okay, our mortgage market's 50 fixed, 50 variable, um, the variable market's gone through the rate hikes, but that means 10% of your market, assuming just equal distribution of sales, on the fixed rate side, so 10% of the overall market or one-fifth of the fixed rate market is going to refinance. So monetary policy from a pure interest rate standpoint in Canada was far more effective in terms of limiting our spending or changing our behaviors than you would have seen in the States. Right. And I think that was kind of reflected in the equity market returns. Like the, the U.S. was right. was very strong last year, um, much stronger than the Canadian market. And that that's the argument is, does the U.S. have to go into a recession? Or can they they kind of soft land or completely avoid it? And the argument's coming. You saw a, a research piece from our asset allocation team about productivity. So we talked to Elon Collette yesterday. Yeah. yeah, about about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, Pamela, I'd only chime in. I'd perhaps take it from a different angle, which is I think that the average Canadian, though, we got really used to two, two yeah. and a half. I mean, even for a little bit of sub two percent variable. And I do still think, and we hear it a lot, that just that shock of if you were to Andrew's point sitting in a variable and you've gone from two to five or, mm, or you're about massive. to renew, even if rates are coming down, I think there's still that huge fear that they're not coming down enough for a lot of people to get comfort to say, oh, well, I'm going to be okay now. I'm not going to see a 30, 40, 50, whatever percent increase 
in my payments. And we're definitely hearing that a lot, that that's especially with advisors. They're having a lot of those conversations, even people that own rental, uh, the rental markets or if they have investment right. properties. I mean, all the math on all of that has changed yeah. and it changed so quickly that I, I think the, the thought, this is my personal opinion, that's still working its way through. And I think a lot of people are still feeling that. And Dave, how does that come back to what you mentioned almost off the top is sort of deploying capital, deploying, deploying cash. You gotta get investors out of that place where they're so concerned. How, how do you see that, I don't know if we call it a struggle, but how do you see that conversation for advisors going forward through this year? Is it any different than last year? What, what are sort of the subtleties of that conversation? Well, I suppose, and Andrew will definitely chime in, but I, I suppose hopefully the terrible scenario was off the table is that when rates were just doing this mm -hmm. and everyone's sitting there going, how, like, how bad can this get? And all you kept hearing is we're not done, we're not done. I think the people have felt better to at least think, okay, at least we've crested or we've peaked, excuse me. Mm -hmm. But now the question is, and Andrew just mentioned this, are we gonna go sideways now? Are we gonna go down now? So now I think it's at least Armageddon's off the table and what does recovery look like? Right. And I think that's the conversation a lot of advisors are gonna be having this year in getting people comfortable, again, with looking at their own personal balance sheets and deciding how to deploy investments. Fascinating, it's so fascinating. And Andrew, um, <coughs> Talk a little bit about correlations. I mean, as we saw the market spike towards the end of the last year, um, you do get back into that correlation discussion, yeah. don't you? What, what do you do with that from yeah. a product perspective? Well, I think the, the question that coming out of 2010-22 when the 60-40 did not behave like we wanted it to, nope. um, is the 60-40 dead? I, I don't think the answer is that it's dead, but I think it's evolving. And I think there's a number of reasons why correlations are increasing. Um, like just take for example the the rise of direct investing. Yes. Like we now have access to so much information, and we have so many traders in the market. And if you were to compare that versus the '80s, you didn't have that access to information. You also didn't have electronic trading, and so you had pensions and asset managers like Fidelity that were moving the big chunks of money in, in the market, and they were doing it in a sophisticated, non-emotional way. And then you saw things in like 2021 where an army of traders join on Reddit and they can push a stock price. Oh yeah, big time. Just through meeting through a chat room effectively. They were right? market makers. Um, so I, I, I think it's really interesting to say, okay, our correlation's gonna be increased going forward if say versus the 80s, I think the answer is yes. And this is not empirically, okay. this is just me kind of looking at the, okay, how has the world evolved and how has it changed? And when we're looking at those historical correlations, what's different today? But when you look at the 60-40 in terms of times of stress, so let's go back to Silicon Valley Bank. You saw that negative correlation actually kick back in. Yeah. And so when you kind of say, okay, what happened in 2022 where both bonds and stock kind of lost money and were positively correlated, you say, well, we didn't really have that true risk to the market with the exception of, of SVB and some of like the signature banks, but they, they kind of resolved themselves very, very quickly. Right because the treasury department and everyone stepped in Step and kind right of back, back the bank. So I think when you look at, okay, we're truly gonna go into risk off and there's whether systemic risk or, or a risk of a hard landing, I think the expectation is that negative correlation does kick back in because they are the safe haven asset as the US right. treasury is. Okay, that's it. Um, so, but then on top of that, Dave, I might put this to you, is, is sort of the rise and the role of alts, which Fidelity has actually um, offered these alt funds through an extraordinary market period. We can think about what they've navigated through. 
over the course of the last how many years? Is it three years? Two three years? years. Yep. Three, three years. years. Um, just go through some of those and, and really the role going forward based on what we're talking about here, like a, a tricky place to make sure that you're not too co-related. Ultimately, we were thrilled to get into the market and we're thrilled that actually I would say and I say to Andrew and, and Kelly, who's our head of product and market, I would say, you know, our advisors want more alts from us. They, they, they look at us because this is and Andrew's far better to, to speak on this than I am, but it's a trick. Long only, we all understand what long only is, but when you introduce, you know, shorting into a portfolio, it, it changes things. And I think that when clients are looking to invest their clients money, you want to know that there's a lot of checks and balances on that short book and that it's really being right. looked at because there can be a lot of uh, issues there. But I think it's very exciting. I think that you're now seeing uh, alts being added into all different ways in portfolios. I know many dealerships out there are actually encouraging advisors to look at alts and, you know, in a responsible, obviously, way. How can they be added? So I would say from us, expect us to obviously keep talking about the ones we have and we're definitely looking Which are, actively. we've got Long Short. We've got but. Long Short, we've got uh, Brett DeLay, who's got a market neutral. neutral. We've got Dave Way uh, with a Long Short and then we've got a Dan DuPont uh, with Global Value Long Short. So I would, I, would, I would encourage everyone, I mean, they're all very different. The three of them, we really came out right. with three yeah. very different um, options and that was obviously on purpose. So I mean, I would encourage everybody, if you're not speaking to your sales team and getting to know those three products and perhaps how they can work for you, it'd be great to do that. Yeah, yeah, amazing, amazing. Are they offered as ETFs or how does this work? So you may have noticed that about last week we did file an amendment to the prospectus to offer an ETF share class on them. So stay tuned for that. But early February is, is expected for the, to bring our capabilities. And just as a firm, um, we started with the active ETFs and share class kind of global innovators, Canadian large gap, Global small cap opportunities um, and Canadian. I'm missing one here. Hugo, Greater yeah, Canada. Greater Canada. Um, but when we look at our shelf now, we're, we're we're kind of starting to get vehicle agnostic, and we're getting very very comfortable that when an active mandate meets the liquidity profile of an ETF, so we feel that there can be efficient markets made in them, we are comfortable going into that space. We work very closely with the, the market makers on the the liquid. Also, we're excited uh, to bring those out. Um, not every mutual fund, so think about like a, a mutual fund that may invest in micro caps or international right. liquid securities. Maybe that doesn't fit the profile of an ETF, but we're exploring our lineup right now and listening to our clients. Let's talk a bit about crypto. Canada's kind of ahead on that um, in terms of offerings. It's, it's mostly a big deal because it's been allowed in the U.S., which in Canada it was allowed earlier. But does someone want to pick that up? I want to sort of talk about what kind of a month it's been so far <laughs> for the crypto story. I maybe can go from high end and then and Andrew is very, very close to it. I think what's made this really interesting is Canada, which was interesting, was really a, a front runner in yeah. doing this. Like we were there before the U.S. You don't hear about that a lot. But now that the U.S. has done this, and I think and it's written in every article that's out there, it's legitimized it. Like right. it, it, it has right. said, okay, like this is no- An asset class. This yeah. is a real yeah. asset class. This is no longer a, a fad or a trend. This is here to stay. It's going to be here in 10 years. So. I think and Andrew can speak about the flows, which have been amazing what we've seen in the States. But I would definitely say from an investor point of view, I think for all those people that were wondering, you know, is this going to be here? I think we've now gotten that answer in the last week. And that's a big deal. Yeah, Andrew. I think it's the first time in history we've taken an asset class from Main Street to Wall Street. Like if you think about it, like what did Wall Street is do? Is it? Yeah. That's like, really interesting. Yeah. Think about the, the evolution of investing. We touched on it earlier. In the 80s, you had the pensions and the asset managers that were selling product right. to, to retail or Main Street, as we would call it. Um, Crypto was born on Main Street, and Wall Street did not want to touch it. Canada was early. We did it three years ago almost. Um, but remember that Bitcoin's been around for almost 15 years coming up pretty soon. Hmm. And so this is one of those few instances where you have a investment opportunity that goes from Main Street to Wall Street. So it's, it's quite interesting to see. 
Um, but yeah, I think Dave's point is, is it's here. It's now available in ETFs. Um, the Canadian market was under stress um, given what we saw the launch in the U.S. Like net, net, if you take the redemptions coming out of the Grayscale, which was the closed end fund right. that converted in the first few days of trading, it brought in almost $800 million. And just to put some numbers around it, um, the Fidelity and the iShares U.S. listed ETFs on the first day of trading were in the top 25 in the entire U.S. in volume. Like that's up there with the SPY, like these legacy wow. ETFs that have been around since the 90s. It's just money yeah, pouring just money, into Yeah, it, it, was, it was quite fascinating. That's quite exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's going to be fascinating to watch, but it was also kind of, a, a buy the rumor, sell the news type event. Right, right. The approval, the, the hack that approved it a day early on the SEC account was quite magnificent, but it pushed the price up to about 48,000 USD. Today we're probably around 42,500, 43,000. So the market kind of knew it was coming and bought into that rumor, and it was more of a sell the news type event. Um, there's a lot of dynamics that are happening behind the scenes because the closed end fund is going through quite significant redemptions now that they've converted right. to the ETF. So it's going to be interesting to see. And I also think the other part is we don't know how many hedge funds or smart money were in there for an arbitrage opportunity. Sure, and are getting out. Yeah. There was a $26 billion closed-end fund that was trading at 10 15% discounts. And you could just short the spot market, go long the closed-end, and you knew that gap was going to close. So, like, I don't know the number, but you have to imagine there was a lot of investors in that market that were not taking a view on the price of crypto, but they were playing a spread game where they could just arbitrage away that discounted nav when the, the announcement came. So I think it, it'll play out in the next couple of weeks, but we're watching it pretty closely. The dust will settle yeah. a little bit. It, yeah. It's interesting in sort of the overall um, different types of investments that you can yeah. make right now. There's there's more to say. A couple of questions coming in. Dave, we'll put this to, well, to both of you. So how do you approach rebalancing funds um, like Global Equity Plus? So it's sort of the rebalancing question. Either of you can take a look at that. Yeah. I'll let you take that. Yeah, the way, the way we actually set up our um, flows is actually kind of does a lot of the work for us and it's a tax efficient way to do it. So if you think about, okay, say it's one third, one third, one third, every new dollar comes in at one third, one third, one third. So when it's drifting, um, you're actually bringing it back down to its strategic weight of one third, one third, um, just by taking new money in. So okay. that reduces the taxes of us actually turning it over if we were in a capital gain standpoint. Right. And then when money goes out, it kind of goes out at the weights that it's actually in, which also brings hmm. it back. Um, so the goal is, is if we're doing our job, and this Dave touched on $800 million, we haven't had to rebalance it because the flows are actually being linked back to the strategic weight. Um, but at the end of each year, we will review it and say, okay, are they out of our strategic bands? And we will step in if we, we, we have to, but we design these products to be kind of as tax efficient as we can, and our goal is to touch that portfolio as little as possible. Fantastic. Um, Dave, take us back to, we opened the discussion with the types of conversations you were hearing from advisors, mm -hmm. you know, kind of what you want them to know going forward. Let's go into 2024. What do you want some of the advisors tuning in, listening to you here today, just to remember to hear from you um, for the year ahead? Yeah, th thanks for the question. And, and I would just say to all of our advisor partners, we're, I'm very proud that we have the largest sales team in Canada. Andrew's touched on this. We have, I would say, I've been here almost 20 years. We've never had the variety of products that we have today. We've never had the variety of subject matter experts, tax experts. And I would just say to everyone, please, our, our goal is to be their number one partner. Our goal is that whenever they need anything, that the first email or the first telephone call that they make is to their Fidelity sales team. We have wonderful events coming up. We have a vision event 
uh, at the end of this month, uh, where we're hopefully going to have almost a thousand people here awesome. in Toronto, thousands online. So I really just encourage everyone that we're there. We want to be right there with you through this year. It will be a weird and wonderful year as they always are. And I just hope that everybody, as I said, can leverage their fidelity and their fidelity sales team as much as possible. That's fantastic. Any just uh, closing thought, Andrew, you want to leave investors with, advisors with? No, I was just going to say, I, I do think it's the time to start looking at that redeployment of high interest savings and GICs into the more traditional 60-40 asset classes, because regardless of when, if the market's right, whether it's April, July, September, I think we need to start thinking about reinvestment risk from an interest rate standpoint, rather than the, the total return I'm going to get over the next 12 months. So I think that's a key theme that will play out. It started in the back end of last year from an ETF flow standpoint. So I actually think you're seeing this, this gradual shift from the kind of the cash market into kind of the, the front end of the curve or the midpoint of the curve as people start to get more confident about the, the interest rate policy coming out of the Bank of Canada and Federal Reserve. Two smart gentlemen. Very happy to have both of you here, Dave and Andrew. Thank you for your time spending it here. All the best. Yeah. Happy New Year. Great to see you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.